open our Bibles to Luke chapter 16. If you have a Bible, I'll invite you to turn to Luke 16. And to begin things, uh, I want you to begin thinking about who the most difficult people are to reach with the gospel. From a human perspective, who are the people who are really hard to reach with the gospel? It doesn't take very long to consider the fact that it's really hard to reach people with the gospel, at least from a human perspective, if they're religious people. Uh, if they go to church on a regular basis, uh, synagogue, um, they know some things about God, um, but they don't really know the gospel, many times what happens is they think they're good people. I'm a good person because I go to church or synagogue or something like that to the, to the temple, and I try to do the right thing, and those kinds of people don't really see a need for atonement, that they have to have God's wrath against them satisfied because why would God be upset with me? I'm a good person. I go to church. Tough to reach those kind of people. Another kind of person that's tough to reach with the gospel from a human perspective would be wealthy people. Wealthy people are hard because so many times they don't have any needs. At least they don't think they have any needs. Uh, they're not desperate. Uh, they, they can buy whatever they need to buy. They can meet all of their needs. And, and even sometimes they might interpret the possessions that they have as God's affirmation. I wouldn't have all these things if God didn't give them to me, which is half true, partially true. But So I'm a good person and I'm fine. Why, do, why would I need the gospel? I'm set. I'm comfortable. Anything but desperate. Generally, we would agree, if, agree with that. If you've ever tried to share the gospel with very many people, those are the toughies. Those are hard people to reach. That's how it is now. It's always been that way. Certainly, it was that way when Jesus walked planet Earth. When Jesus dealt with people who were wealthy, it was hard to communicate the truth about himself as far as getting them to embrace that. It wasn't hard to communicate it for Jesus, but you know what I mean. Or people who were the good people. And then there was a certain kind of person that actually qualified as both. Jesus, you might call them his arch enemies, the Pharisees. The famous bad guys of the Bible were actually, in one sense of the day, the famous good guys. Because they're good moral people. They believe the Bible is true. They're monotheists. They believe in one true God. They have major portions of the Bible memorized. And not only that, they tended to be wealthy. And they equated the wealth with God's approval. And so when Jesus shows up on the scene and is communicating the truth about himself, that he's going to save his people from their sins and provide perfect atonement and reconciliation. Reconciliation? If I'm a Pharisee, I don't need to be reconciled to anybody. Well, why would I need atonement that you would offer to me? I'm, I'm on God's side. God approves of me. Even my bank account proves that God approves of me. And so when we read Luke 15, we're not going to do that now, but when you read in Luke 15, Jesus has all of these stereotypical bad people coming to him. You know, sinners. People who do wrong and they know they do wrong and everybody else knows they do wrong. And the poor people coming to him. And Jesus is calling them to repent, to, to, to not think wrongly about him as Messiah, but to think the right way about him and, and, and to embrace him, to believe in him. And Jesus is calling all these bad people, all of these sinners to, to faith in him, that he's the promised one. You can be reconciled to God through me. And guess who's upset? The Pharisees are upset. They're grumbling. 
scandalous to them. Jesus, if he really were our Messiah, he wouldn't be with those bad people. He'd be with those good people. There's all kinds of trouble stirring outside of Jerusalem in Luke 15. Now, I mention all of this because I want you to remember that as we go into Luke 16. Okay, as we go into Luke 16, and we're studying the gospel according to Luke as a church, and we're at chapter 16 right now, and so I just want you to remember that. There's this major scandal going on because Jesus is with the poor people, Jesus is with uh, the sinful people, and he's surrounded by them, and the Pharisees don't like it at all because they don't need him, quite honestly, just like good church people don't need him. Just like wealthy people don't need him. They don't need him because they're wealthy and they're quote-unquote good church people. You get the idea, right? So with that in mind, in Luke 16, Jesus takes his disciples and, and, and begins instructing them. But please don't think somehow they went to another place. Pharisees are still in plain view. His disciples have been around him all this time. And now it's time to make sure his disciples understand what a major issue this is. So, so he, he's addressing them here now in chapter 16, which we're going to look at. But just know that Pharisees are still there. He's going to go back to talking about the Pharisees. And we're going to look at this parable in Luke 16, verses 1 to 13. I should say one more thing about it, and that is um, respectable Bible commentators say this is not just one of the most difficult parables. They say it is the most difficult parable to interpret and apply. And so I'm just thankful that my salvation doesn't depend upon getting it right, okay? <laughs> I think most things in the Bible are pretty straightforward and easy to understand. Some things are more difficult to understand, and I'm just thankful for salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Um, I, I, you will hear my interpretation, um, and it may be right and it may be wrong. I've done my best, uh, but some things in the Bible are difficult, and so I want to at least tell you that to express some, some humility and say, that we, we, we won't have a church split over the way I handle this. Um, fair enough? We won't, right? <laughs> What's interesting is, is, is uh, you know, we've been doing a, a, a topical series for a few weeks. few. Um, anyway, and so when I came back to Luke and I opened my Bible and started reading and it made me think, that's why you did a topical series. <laughs> I, I blamed it on the Spirit of God, but it was just because I didn't want to deal with this hard passage. No, it's not really true, but I thought it made sense why it was time to take a break. Anyway, uh, here we go. Let's jump into the parable. It says in Luke 16, verse 1, he also, meaning Jesus, he also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager... And charges were brought to him that this man, the manager, was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. In other words, what would we say he's saying? You're fired, right? You're fired. And we're going to see later on in verse 8 and the rest of the text, it's not just that he wasn't a good investor, there was actually unethical things going on. Okay, so, so he's, he's a bad guy. He's done, he's done a bad job, uh, not just a, not, not just a unproductive job, but he's actually done something wrong. Not just incompetence, but there's actually something unethical. 
I remember one time when I had a high school job and working part-time and, and a, for a retail store, and I showed up after school to work, two police cars out front of the store kind of blocking the front doors, and I thought, oh, no, you know, what in the world is going on in my job? And, and I show up, and I walk in, and one of the managers had been found out by corporate because he was filing false returns. And he was pocketing the money. I liked the guy so much. He had a, he had a Jeep. He had a cool Jeep. And he would say, we'll, we'll call his name Scott because that was his name. Um, <laughs> and Scott... <laughs> I just can't resist that. Anyway. He had his cool Jeep and he'd show up and the top would be off the Jeep. And he'd say, hey, Pat, you know, it's dinner time. Time for your dinner break. Uh, if you want to take the Jeep, go ahead. And it'd be like, seriously? So I'd get in his Jeep and go buy his dinner for him. And maybe he'd buy my dinner for me and could drive down the street and get a sandwich. It was awesome. Well, guess what he was doing? He was filing fake returns. It was what he was doing. And he was pocketing the money. And he ended up getting arrested, arrested for it. Now, this isn't exactly the same, but I figured you needed a little brevity and a little levity along the way. Not exactly the same because he's going to give the guy a little bit of time. The police aren't there putting him in handcuffs. But he's done the wrong thing, unethical, and he's been fired. Okay? Verse 3. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. Okay? I can't be a laborer, and I can't, I won't beg. What what, what can I do? What am I going to do? Verse 4. I have decided what to do. So that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. What's going on there in his mind? I don't want to be, I don't want to be homeless. Right? If I can't work, I I don't have a roof over my head. I'm going to be desperate. Good word for this parable, by the way. I'm going to be desperate and I've got to make sure I come up with a creative plan so I'm not desperate. And so people will take me in. Okay. Here's the plan. Won't leave him homeless. Verse five. So. Summoning his master's debtors, people who owed his master, one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. It's in your handwriting, you know, and these are massive sums of wealth, like massive sums of money, even though it's in oil and it's in wheat, and you just change it. I mean, can you say fraudulent? Radically so. This guy is a bad guy. He's doing the wrong thing. If the Pharisees are listening to the parable at this point in time, they would be right in saying, that guy is the bad guy. That is wrong. That's a violation. Now, some people have worked really hard to have this not be a wrong thing. Because Jesus is going to use the wrong thing as a good example. And we want to protect Jesus from doing anything like that. But at face value, it seems like this guy's doing the wrong thing. And I'm just going to go for the face value one. seems like he's doing the wrong thing. And the Pharisees would be right in saying, that's bad. So with that in mind, again, I might be wrong, but 
It's the face value straightforward of taking it. Verse 8 says, The master commended, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness or his cleverness. And that's where you go, what? Right? It's the shocker. The master compliments him for his, his cleverness, his shrewdness, his creativity. He's desperate and he's going to be homeless and without anything in an unsafe position. So he is crafty, he's shrewd, he's clever, and he comes up with a plan so he's not homeless anymore. And the master compliments him. You see why it's complicated? But I would suggest to you to at least notice, it doesn't suggest anywhere that the master gave him his job back, or that the master said, what you did is good, right, and ethical. But he compliments him for his shrewdness. And I think if we just leave it at that, we can leave it at that. Why does Jesus tell this parable? Well, I think if we keep reading verse 8, it helps. Second part of verse 8. For the sons of this world, it's a way of describing the godless, godless people, unethical people, are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Religious people like the Jews and the Pharisees, sons of light. Let's reread that again. It helps us understand where he's going. The sons of this world, the godless, the sinners, stereotypically, are more shrewd, more crafty, more creative in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light, the, the people who name God as their God. I think... What Jesus is doing is drawing the point of comparison between the Pharisees who are the good people, the sons of light, the ethical people who would be offended by the illustration. And he's using that masterfully as Jesus is the master teacher. And he's using that to make the point that in this case, you could learn a lesson from the bad guys. You're going to learn a lesson from the dishonest guy. He's not commending the dishonesty, but the guy is desperate and he wants to survive. And so he does desperate things in order to survive. And you know what, Mr. and Mrs. Pharisee, you might just learn a lesson from that guy. In our greater context, I think that's where, he, where he's going. Greater context is the Pharisees have wealth. They have external integrity. They're the people of God. They're the sons of light. And when Jesus comes, they don't need Jesus because they're not desperate. And Jesus uses the unethical acts of a quote-unquote bad person to say, you good people, quote-unquote, might want to learn something from bad people. Desperate times call for desperate measures. I think that's what he's getting at. 
People who are desperate do desperate things in order to live. This guy's desperate, and he's going to do something desperate in order to live. The Pharisees saw themselves as anything but desperate. And it's causing them to miss Jesus. If this is right, still a hard interpretation, but I think it's kind of cool. Jesus isn't affirming inherent bad actions, but he's saying you should learn something from these unbelievers. (gasps) Us? Learn from an unbeliever? Yeah, you should learn something from an unbeliever. When they're desperate, they're not worried about saving face. They're not worried about image. They're not worried about all these things that you guys are so caught up with. They just want to survive. And good, quote-unquote, religious people who want to save face all of the time could maybe learn something from criminals who are desperate because they'll do anything to survive, at times, at least in this case. I think it should be taken in that light. They should do something extreme. They should trust in Jesus. They're hopeless and helpless, but they don't see themselves as hopeless and helpless. But it would be really helpful if they would see themselves like the criminal saw himself, as hopeless and helpless, and then they would turn to Christ. And by way of application, I mean, it it fits pretty easy. We're, We're good church people, no crisis, everything's taken care of, I can have my needs met. And we always want to look at the good guys for our example. Well, if all of our needs met, our needs are met, and we don't see our need for Christ, and there's no desperation, maybe we should stop holding up good examples and at least hold up a bad example of a criminal who's on the run just trying to survive. Not holding up the criminality, is criminality a word I think it is? Not holding up the bad actions but holding up the desperation. He's a sinner and he knows he's a sinner for that matter. He's in trouble. We need to be those kinds of people. Instead of sophisticated, everything's good because my needs are met, everything's taken care of. Keep giving me good examples. I think verse 9 should be taken in this light, though I might be wrong. Verse 9 says, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves, like this guy was, right? Still in that context. Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. Be like the desperate guy in the parable, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now, you may have heard a sermon on that verse before. Who knows? I might have even preached one. My memory is so bad, I don't know. You may have heard a a sermon on that verse that would say, that's why you should give. Because what you want to do is give toward gospel advancement. And people will be converted through the gospel. Because we need to fund missionaries and we need to fund preachers and churches and those things. And what will happen is people will get saved and want to be great someday. When you get to heaven, you'll have these friends there. Maybe that's what it means. 
I think that's one of the more common views. It might be true. I, th- I think it is true. I mean, I, I, we, could, we could preach that sermon even if it's not in this text. We're supposed to sacrifice. We're supposed to give. We're supposed to evangelize. And won't it be great? I mean, we support missionaries in other countries and other places. Sometimes in this country. Won't it be great when the dollar you gave or the thousand dollars you gave allowed somebody to have a plane ticket to go and to equip other pastors and equip other believers, maybe evangelize people. And actually, because of your dollar, even though it's not about money, somebody heard the gospel and got saved, and you might even meet that person. I don't know if that's how heaven works. It's pretty cool. I'm all for all of that. Absolutely all for all of that. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. How will they know without a preacher? Romans 10. We're, we, we want to be passionate about those things. I'm just not going to take this passage that way, but I would affirm it in its theology and the motivation. I'm just going to take it in the flow of things. I think what he's talking about is still that guy in the parable. Let's read it again. Let's let's not take it that traditional way. Let's read it again. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves just like the, the crooked guy in the parable. He's making friends by means of unrighteous wealth. Yeah, That's what he did. So that when it fails, they, those people who you made friends with, may receive you into the eternal dwellings. The eternal dwellings? Huh. That's similar to what the dwelling place was he talked about earlier. Right? When you're homeless and you made these friends, they'll receive you into their dwellings. And now he's talking about something greater. He's making the spiritual point. You'll be received into an eternal dwelling. He's talking about heaven now. And I'm going to take it, therefore, to mean it's about this desperation thing. It's about this learn from this guy thing. Learn that you're desperate thing. Learn that you need Christ. Right? So, so instead of when my man- management job is over, I'm not going to have a temporary place to lay my head, so I'm going to be desperate and go to desperate extremes. When my life is over and I step into eternity, because now he's talking about eternal dwelling... I'm not going to have anything. I'm going to be empty-handed. I'm going to be desperate among all desperation. And the clock is ticking. Tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. What, 85,000 people will die today? I mean, this is like a big deal. So be a desperate person so you have an eternal dwelling. And again, the obvious thing, sometimes we don't make very obvious because we look at all the details and take apart all the syntax and verbs and vowels and grammar. The obvious answer is Jesus is standing in front of them. And he just got done talking about uh, sinners coming to him and they're not saving face. He's confronting the Pharisees and now he's talking to them about an eternal dwelling and that's what a desperate person would do. They would act in such a way that even these criminals, this criminal acted. I think that's what's going on. I think it's a, it's a, It's a call without saying it in light of chapter 15 to repent and have faith in Jesus. And think about what this would have looked like for them. But if I repent and and trust in Jesus and go to the extreme, you know what? I'm going to be ostracized by my religious community. That's right. Desperate 
times call for desperate measures. But but if I do that, what's going to happen is I'm actually going to lose connection with my family. And I live in a culture at the, in the first century, they, they might actually have a funeral for me and never talk to me again. That's right, and desperate times call for desperate measures. You do anything so that you have an eternal dwelling. Learn a lesson or two from criminals. They're not so concerned about saving face. When the music stops, you want to have a chair to sit in. Learn a lesson or two from unethical pagans about survival. Passivity doesn't cut it. Saving face doesn't cut it. Trusting in Jesus as Messiah is the only thing that cuts it. How many of you have ever read a Tom Clancy novel? Oh, we've got a lot of readers here. No. <laughs> How about a Tom Clancy movie? Uh, anybody? Jack Ryan? Right? Yeah, that's going up a little bit. Um, and in and, and my house, when Molly and I, especially when we first married, Jack Ryan is like the coolest ever, you know. Um, Alec Baldwin, not such a great Jack Ryan. Harrison Ford, much better Jack Ryan. Then who else played Jack Ryan? Anyway, there's more of them. And uh, One of my favorites is Clear and Present Danger. It might not be a classic in our culture, but it's a classic for me. I love Clear and Present Danger. I love the music. I love the whole thing. It's a great one. So your Sunday school assignment is to go home and watch Clear and Present Danger. You'll learn many spiritual lessons. <laughs> you'll, you'll like the Harrison Ford figure. I mean, you want to be like him, and you're drawn into him, and, you know, Mr. President, I don't dance, and all this kind of great one-liners. And He is the man. I want to watch it today. There's a guy in that, that film named, in his, 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 um, his stage name in, in, in the movie, it's Robert Ritter, CIA Deputy Director of Operations. And he's the guy you hate. He's a bad guy. He's unethical. He's in the right position. But he's a bad guy. But he's crafty. And there's a lesson to be learned there. He's cunning and crafty to the point where he knows it's all going to get exposed. All the corruption is going to get exposed. And you're going to have people going to prison. And so he has the, the president or his chief of staff or whoever it is. I can't remember. I'll know after today because I'll watch it. He gets a letter signed. He gets a get-out-of-jail-free card. And in utter desperation, he does anything to get that. Because he doesn't want to go to prison. He doesn't want to get the death sentence. So the next time you watch the movie, at least be willing to learn a spiritual lesson from the guy you want to hate. Learn something about desperate times call for desperate measures. And if being sophisticated and maybe saving face and not ruffling anybody's feathers in your family causes you to be indifferent to Christ, at least learn one really good lesson from ungodly people. They don't care so much about saving face. They just want to survive. And there's an eternity coming, and Jesus is talking about an eternal dwelling. And we want to make sure we're ready for that.
Sermon one is done. Now I'm going to do another sermon. Okay? I think that, that captures the, the, the gist of the parable. That's what he's getting at. But now since money came up and just did not give the wrong impression about money, I, I think, and again, this might not be the right way to take it, I think he deals with money now in some miscellaneous ways. And, and he, he clarifies things. Remember, he's with his disciples and he wants to make sure they're equipped and ready to go and do ministry. Remember, they're going to provide a, a, a key foundation for the church and he wants to make sure they're not like the Pharisees. So he just used this bad example, but now he's going to teach him some things that are not bad examples. They're actually the right things. They're the right principles when it comes to money. And I want to go ahead and cover those rather quickly before we wrap up our time together. I think now he is more general. It's almost like, and maybe this isn't right, but it's almost like since we talked about that, since money is on the table and we're talking about that topic, let's go ahead and talk about some true things about money. Okay, lest you misunderstand. I think that's what's happening. Follow up with the disciples. Verse 10, one who is faithful in a, very, in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. It's like a proverb. I drew a line though. I think he's, he's off to a different subject even though it's kind of related. Seems to be talking about something else. Money in general. If you're faithful with little, you'll be faithful with much. That's a proverb, proverbial. Disciples, don't be like the Pharisees with all the grand things and people can see right through it. Remember, Jesus time and time again calls them hypocrites. Because again, it looks so good in the big things and the outside and inside it's not good. Compromise, 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 compromise. So I think he's equipping them. You don't compartmentalize faithfulness. We try to reason otherwise. I do in my, in my own head. Just give me the glory. Just give me the big stuff. I don't have time for this. And he's saying to his disciples, again, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, well, that'll be the foundation of the church. Christ the cornerstone. But apostles and prophets, if you're faithful with little, you'll be faithful with much. Don't be like the Pharisees. And we can apply this. We apply it in our daily life, in our homes, in our Christian living. It's proverbial, so it's true for unbelievers and believers in that sense. We apply it in the church. We utilize this in the church as far as we don't ask people to do these great, grandiose things if they haven't proven themselves faithful in little things. It's just a great, great way to look at things when it comes to leading, serving, integrity. It's a great statement. Give a little responsibility, and if they're faithful with a little, they'll be faithful with more. Verse 11 then says, If then you have not been faithful in the right, in the right unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? Again, proverbial, pretty straightforward. You guys want to, whether you want to or not, I'm going to call you to be the leaders. Those little things that go unseen like your use of money. is a good indicator of your use with other things. If we're thinking sanely and soberly, that's what we want. The money's not going to last. Spiritual things do last. And so at our best moments, we, we're like, God, give me these responsibilities. I want to do this. I want to do great things to honor you and to glorify your name and invest in eternity. Things are going to last forever. 
That's how these disciples would think. It's how we think in our best moments. And he's saying, well, there's not a disconnect between the ordinary things you do and the extraordinary things you do. And so keep that in mind. And I don't know about you, but that's convicting. <laughs> but it's helpful. It's a great reminder. In my notes, literally, literally I wrote, God help me. Because the reality is, when we're honest, there's a disconnect between the things I do and the ordinary things and the extraordinary things. Would have been true for them. It's been true for everybody, and it is true for everybody except Christ. But he's saying, you're going to be my disciples? So much not like the Pharisees. Different kind of deal. There's also not just personal application here that's helpful, even helpful application for us as a church. Let's move on to the next one. Verse 12. And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? That's another hard statement because we usually say the exact opposite. I think the exact opposite is also true. If you're faithful with your own, then maybe we'll entrust to you some other people's stuff, like the manager in the illustration, in the, in the parable. Here he says it the opposite. And I go, what? Maybe, I don't know if this is the case, if he's talking about the disciples and their leadership and what they're going to do, if you're in a leadership kind of context, then it could make more sense. Maybe you, let's use a, a, a non-biblical illustration. If you are on a team or you're on a crew doing work together, if you're faithful there, then maybe you'll be given your own crew to lead. Again, I don't know if that's the case, but it's at least one, one illustration of this, this point being made. I want my own. I want to be in charge. Well, if you're faithful with that which is not yours, then maybe you will be given your own as in responsibilities. And these disciples are going to be major leaders. The major leaders. And so he's helping us. He's helping them to not just say, well, once I'm there, everything will be fine and good. He's saying, no, the, the now matters. Stewardship now matters. Then let's wrap up with verse 13. No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Since we're on the money topic, let me just make it really clear. You can't serve God and money. You can't have two, two gods. You can't have two masters. And remember, we just did the series Theology Matters. I don't want to belabor this, but Theology Matters. He's assuming there that they're monotheists. By the way, if you're a person who believes in many, many, many gods, money can be one of your gods. Because you have so many other gods, and, and, and since there are many of them, they, they, they can't really have a problem with that because there are many of them. It's just another one. There's nothing unethical about it. Jesus could never make this statement. 
but he's already assuming their worldview from Deuteronomy chapter 6, that there is only one true living God, and if that's the case, theology matters, you can't be more devoted to your money than to that God, or it's a God. You can't serve both of them as priority number one. Can't be done. And again, this is so good and so helpful because you, I, you know, I feel the kind of, man, I like stuff. I love stuff. I love the stuff that money can buy. I hate it when I drive by the billboard that says, you know, however many bazillion dollars the lottery is. And I'm just like, I waste the next 20 minutes thinking about all the stuff I would buy. And it's like, man, see, I just did it to you. It's like, you just messed with my day. I could have been more productive. I, I, we, we, we are just that way. We're worshipers and we're sinful. And so we're, we're that way. We start acting like polytheists, which is an offense to God because there's only one God, reality. But here's where I want to go with you. He's telling them what's true and right. It's good to know what's right and get in touch with reality. But the, but, but, and so that's good. That's a good corrective. But also realize and know that they are sinners and we are sinners and so our allegiances are divided. And so this, this, is, this is like the law of God. It just slays you. You're like, oh man. Because if I'm not thinking about the money, I'm thinking about the stuff. Right? I mean, there's just no way I could look you in the eye and say, you know what? I love God the way I should love God. I, I, I couldn't do that. I know that that's the right thing because that's what Jesus says and, and it's in touch with reality, but I would be, I would be a hypocrite. I just want you to know I'm going to give you seven steps on how to do this and I found them to be helpful and successful. And you're looking at me like, you're such a liar. You should, right? Because all have sinned. All have sinned. But it doesn't mean what Jesus is saying isn't true. It is true. And so here I am going, I, I know that that's true, and I could teach that. I can translate the verse in Greek. Oh, wow. But I have to say, you know what? In so many ways, the statement of Jesus just slays me. Which I think is really helpful. Because Jesus, the one who's standing before them, is the one who came to save his people from their sins. And you need to know that. I mean, I want you to feel guilty. You can't serve your stuff in God. How about that? So when you, when your number one priority is not God and it's your stuff or your family or your bank account or your accomplishments or the next car or the next motorcycle or the next bicycle, whoever would think that way, <laughs> you're an idolater and you deserve to go to hell. And this, this, this verse right here proves it. That's in touch with reality. And it's not right. And Jesus came to save his people from their sins. And he's standing right in front of them. And he's been calling people who know they're sinners, like in chapter 15, to repent and to trust in him. And then, and then, you can at least see straight spiritually. And you can be in touch with reality spiritually. And then, not only that, we have the Spirit of God 
and we have the Word of God, and we have Christ telling us these things, and now we at least know the right thing. And we know we don't stand condemned for not doing the right thing. And we know that Christ has done the right thing on our behalf, the just for the unjust. And so we worship Christ and we do say, God, help me. I want to do the right thing. And oh, by the way, I actually can do the right thing. Because of what Christ has done. Now we're on to something. And I'll be honest with you, I'm interpreting the passage in light of all of Luke. Because I know how it ends. This quickly becomes some kind of moralism. But we know how it ends. We know how it begins. And so we can say, we, we, we know what he's doing. It makes more sense. I mean, think of the sermon doozy I could preach just on that verse. I mean, I could just get you so ratcheted up with legalism, it's not even funny. And I wouldn't sound like a Christian preacher. I do want you to feel it as this is condemning. But then to point you to Christ. And then I want to point you to now you can and should and are capable of honoring Christ. Fruit of the Spirit kind of stuff. And that sounds like Christianity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time this morning. Thank you for Jesus. And thank you for uh, His statements that are true even though they make us feel guilty and we're thankful for jesus and his work because they make us feel reconciled and we're thankful that now out of gratitude because of what you've done by what you do by the power of your spirit um, we can honor you with our lives and we're looking forward to that day when we see jesus and there won't be a struggle anymore there won't be a gap between what we know is right and and what we do we're thankful for that day when we see Jesus as your word promises will be made like him. Help us along the way. Help us to find encouragement in Christ and not in ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.